Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. We are starting, in fact, a brand spanking new book. So if you'd turn to the book of Amos. Now, I'll remind you that this is a short book. It's going to take us about nine weeks to get through the entire thing. Um, We'll largely cover a, a chapter a night as we move on tonight, an introduction to this amazing book. I have some questions for you before we begin tonight. How many of you believe that the Lord changes as culture changes? How many of you think that if we think something is right, he therefore thinks it's right? (laughs) I think all of you got the answers to those questions. I, the Lord, change not. The Lord is the same yesterday, today, and say it together, Forever. Amen. The Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I, the Lord, change not. The reason this is important, church, is I think that a lot of the church, and I'm not talking about specifically any church in particular, but the body of Christ in the world somehow believes that the Lord is less holy today than he used to be, that he has changed because we now believe that certain things are diseases or certain things are genetic predispositions, or if we say that something is so, then it is so, and he must have been wrong when he authored scripture. I, the Lord, change not. God's character has not ever in any way changed. What was true of God 2,800 years ago, what was true in the Garden of Eden, is still true today. His moral character, the fiber of his eternal being, his holiness, his sense of justice, his sense of right and wrong, what he has said about sin and its consequences are still exactly as they have always been. The beauty of our relationship today with the Lord is we now walk in grace, amen, and not the law. But that doesn't mean God's character changed. How we relate to God has changed because we are children by grace through faith having believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's a tendency that people have to look at the Old Testament prophetic books and almost dismiss them because they read them as though, well, that was fine then, but it doesn't mean anything to us today. And while it's important to always put things in context and because we're going to do an introduction tonight to the book, it is important to understand context. But context does not ever negate the character of God. And so as we study this book, 
It's really important that we understand that principle as we look at this ancient text that we have before us. Because when we look at what the Lord is going to do with his own chosen people, it causes us to look at our own lives and say, Lord, how would you then have me live in these last days? Given that time is short, the day is at hand, the return of the Lord may be around the corner, might be tonight, how then should we, as Peter said, then live? Would you join me? We'll pray, and we're going to take just the first first two verses uh, here in Amos chapter 1. Father, we thank you for this incredible first of the writing prophets. Lord, the oldest of all of the prophets that wrote. And we pray that you'd speak to us through the words of this man who lived in a harsh environment in a world that was upside down. Lord, can we draw from it and cause us, Lord, to live our lives in a way that tells people about you, honoring you, Lord, with all that we do and say. And so, Lord, bless us as we study tonight. Encourage us as your people to live lives that are pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1 here in Amos chapter 1. The words of Amos, his name means burden bearer, oddly enough. So anytime, you know, if you want to name your child Amos... Uh, that means that that child will be a burden bearer or the bearer of burdens who was among the herdsmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Now, we met Uzziah before. You remember where? At the beginning of the book of Isaiah. So Amos... And Isaiah were contemporaries, along with Jeremiah. So they're writing in the same basic time frame. Amos is actually slightly older. And and so he's writing at virtually the same time, but he's doing so whereas Isaiah wrote to the children of Judah in Jerusalem, Amos is primarily going to write to Israel, the ten northern tribes, And their capital city, which is the capital city of the Samaritans, in Gerizim. And so here you have a prophet that's kind of like a guy that you would probably look at and go, probably not the sharpest tool in the shed. He's not really well learned. He's a sheep herder. But he has a common wisdom and an understanding of the world that he lives in that obviously comes directly from the Lord. And so he's going to speak to the northern kingdom. And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. So there's your two kings. You have Uzziah, the king of the southern kingdom, Judah. And you have Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, the northern kingdom. And so this is a time in Israel's history when the Jewish people are not united in their love one for another. In fact, there's division, if you will, in in what we would collectively call Israel, but really Israel is only the ten northern tribes. 
And we can begin to immediately see how the church, in that similar way, can be divided. There can be truth taught, and if that truth is not lived out, it can cause division. We're going to learn of the surrounding nations. Now, we get some very specific information in the remainder of verse 1 on into verse 2. Two years before, and notice it, underline very correctly, the earthquake. So great was this earthquake that it marked time. This is going to allow us to date this book very, very closely because we actually know which earthquake this was. Because it's not just recorded here, it's recorded in a whole bunch, a plethora of extra-biblical sources. The writings of Josephus, the writings of Herodotus. This is a very famous earthquake. And we'll look at that uh, shortly. And he said, the Lord will roar from Zion. In other words, speaking from Jerusalem, the capital city. And utter his voice from Jerusalem. And the habitations of shepherds shall mourn. And the top of Carmel shall wither. And so he's giving two geographic locations here, and it's very important to kind of get the gist of this. As we look at this particular area of the world, we have a tendency to think, because we read all of these names, that this is a massive geographic area. To put it into perspective for you, if you travel with us to Israel, when we land in Tel Aviv, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean, and we usually will make a circuit and drive around up through Galilee and come back. By the time it's all said and done, we might travel five, 600 miles in, in 11 or 12 days. But in that five or 600 miles, we will have been within 50 feet of Lebanon, about 50 feet of Syria. We'll go into Jordan. We'll be 40 miles from Egypt. We'll be in the Gaza Strip. We'll be in Israel proper will be in all of these nations that ultimately we're going to find in this book. And there are nations that still to this day are not exactly friendly to the Jewish people. Israel has had to fight for that land, eventually being kicked out of that land for almost 2,000 years. And so this is a story of what happens when you don't listen to the Lord. Because God gave them the land. It was supposed to be a land overflowing with milk and honey, right? The land of promise. It was Canaan. It was the beautiful land. Uh, it was equated to Goshen, which was in Egypt. And we have a tendency to think Egypt and Pharaohs, and it's got to be like four billion miles away. When you're in Elat, in southern Israel, in about half a day, you could walk to Jordan. Another half a day, you could walk to Israel. And you could walk another half a day and you'd be in Egypt. They're very close proximity. The reason this is important is these are the nations that Amos is going to see as problematic for the Jewish people. Now you can ask yourself, is that actually still the case? And of course it is. And so he says, the habitations of the shepherds. That would be the area that is Judah. Judah is the southern kingdom. It's rolling hills. It is primarily desert. And it blends into the Negev. Very much hostile desert environment. 
And about the only thing you can do is raise sheep and goats. The only reason that there's farming today is because the Jewish people are incredibly technologically advanced and industrious. In fact, they actually invented hydroponic gardening. And so a lot of places where they grow things, the rest of the world couldn't do it. But he also mentions the Mount, Mount Carmel. That's in the north. It's the tallest point uh, that's actually in the, the body of what we'd call the nation Israel today, outside of Mount Hermon, which is in the northern corner, the northeastern corner, which is actually the border of Lebanon, Syria, and Israel. All three nations have a common uh, denominator, and at the top of Mount Hermon is the point that they all meet at. So here's this sheep herder who's in the middle of nowhere that receives a vision from the Lord. He's riding in 788 to 747 BC, roughly. And as he writes, you could just call it 750 to round it off. And as he's writing, we would expect him to address things from the perspective of the people at the time. And what he's going to do is he's going to announce very proudly that these people have a problem with God. And so when you look at where he's at, and the reason that this is important is you have to recognize that he's not exactly in Jerusalem. He certainly isn't on Mount Gerizim where the other temple is, but he's in the middle of nowhere. If you look at the map that's up here, you you can kind of see that general geographic region. Now imagine that just off the bottom of this map is where Jordan and Israel and Egypt all meet. He's riding in the middle of a little tiny desert area that's off to the edge of the Dead Sea. And, And it's not a place where you would think that God would send somebody if he had a message for you know, the great metropolis of Jerusalem, which at the time maybe had a couple hundred thousand people in the general region. He's literally in the middle of nowhere. He's going to be the first prophet that actually uses the term the day of the Lord. Speaking of the very last days. And he's going to equate to them, look, God is holy. He expects holiness out of his people. He he loves us, but he is not okay with us doing our things our way. He's going to tell them about God's character, that God hates people being taken advantage of. God hates injustice. God hates rebellion. He is the judge of nations. He, He is the one who actually oversees the world. You know, we have a tendency to think that somehow we kind of control the world. We being America. It's like if we do certain things, the world will prosper. If God were to ever take his hand off of this earth for a nanosecond, this world would come unglued. He actually controls things. He's sovereign king. And so as we look at this book, we actually are going to see a man who could only have gotten this information from the Lord. Because where he lives, none of you would survive a week during the summer out there. There's not one person in this room 
that if I dropped you off in Tekoa and, and you had nothing but the clothes on your back, you would not survive. The reason I know that is I've been there. We've been there. When you travel, this is the location of the famous Dead Sea Scrolls. So that is cave four. That's the original cave. Shepherds in the mid-1940s are hunting for a lost sheep. They throw a couple of rocks into that cave and they hear a strange clank. But what they heard was a stone breaking a clay jar that contained the first of the now tens of thousands of pieces of the Dead Sea Scrolls. But oddly enough, in that cave, specifically scroll number 7882 and number five, part of it is the book of Amos. The book of Amos was in that cave. It was a copy that was written someplace between about 198 and 150 B.C. The Essenes lived here. As you look at this desert environment, when you travel through it, this is the middle of the Negev. And between here and going south as you're heading towards Egypt, everything looks like this. That's what you see. Down that canyon, about 35 miles directly to the west, is the settlement of Tekoa. That little thing that looks like there might have been a waterfall there. Every time it rains, there is a waterfall there, but it disappears about as fast as the sun comes out. This is the desert. And so here's Amos in this environment, by himself, sitting underneath his sycamore tree, receiving from the Lord a download of the Jewish people's history in the north. Not where he is, this is Judah, but the north near the Sea of Galilee, near the Jordan River, the only place in this region that's actually verdant where you could grow crops to where there was reliable water source. You, you scratched out a living here. And we're going to find that Amos does so by picking the fruit off of sycamore trees. This happens to be the little tiny uh, canyon that David hid with his mighty men. There are caves all along the edge of this canyon. Many of them have archaeological digs inside of them. But there are also sycamores in here, and there's, I guess you could call it fruit if you've ever cracked one open. I, not only do they taste terrible, you'd have to harvest 10,000 of them to get any nutrition out of them. But that's how harsh his environment is. And it's in this environment that God is going to speak to this man and he's going to tell them that, look, there is going to be a blight and it's going to come on the Jewish people. And here's the reason why. And the reason I think this is important is because when we look at our lives, if the Lord doesn't change, which he doesn't, and we see these same things in our world, then we ought to be concerned about it. Because if he allowed to happen to his own chosen people. Remember, the Jewish people are God's chosen people. They're still his chosen people. They're still his elect in that sense. And one day they're going to come to faith in Christ. But if God would allow these things to happen to his chosen people, the Jewish people, don't you kind of think maybe we who are children of grace ought to take a look at the way we live our lives and say, Lord, we can do better? 
And I think that's part, if not the central message that we can learn from this particular book. There was a giant earthquake. That earthquake has actually been excavated very seriously. And in fact, the fault which goes through the north wall of the settlement at Gezer has been excavated in a trench cut, which is the way we do these things here. Uh, if you have an earthquake fault, the way that you determine how active the fault is and determine whether there's been slippage and when is by cutting across the trench. There was a trench cut done across this, and this particular earthquake, by the sedimentation that's in there, was in the year roughly 750 B.C. And so this is the earthquake that destroyed that city. It's recorded, by the way, not just here, but it's also recorded by Zechariah the prophet as well. And so as we think on these things, as we look at this place, which, which is by all intents and purposes just this desolate, crazy environment where this guy who heard sheep is wandering around surviving earthquakes and eating, living off the land, why would God tell him this message? Because he would have been killed if he just spoke this message and he lived in these cities, they would have hunted him down. And so he is the first of the writing prophets. He literally writes this message out and sends it in the form of an autograph, an original letter. And it's then distributed to the people in the north in Israel. And so he ends up at this little tiny settlement called Beth El. Now, whenever you see Beth in Hebrew, we spell it B-E-T-H, that means house. So Beth-El is the house of God. And so if you would expect in a city that's named after God himself, the house of God, you might expect people to be living there uh, in a way that's honoring to God himself. But they weren't. This particular group of people had forgotten what God had done, forgotten the deliverance of the Lord, forgotten what God wanted to do in their lives, and forgotten who God was in that sense. And so as we look at Amos, we actually are kind of getting a picture even into our own modern culture. And here's how. If God doesn't change, and he's told us what he expects out of his people, which he has, his word is filled with those things, then what God said through the prophet still applies to us, at least in the moral sense, how we conduct ourselves, what we think about certain sins, how we should react and respond to those things. Amos may be a simple peasant. He might be a country guy. He's not a metro guy. Amos was not wearing skinny jeans, okay? Amos probably wore flannel or something close to it. He was, he was more of a country kind of guy. He would go to the northern kingdom to sell his wool. And so as he's doing this, he, he's able to see what it's like in that environment, but he himself doesn't live in it. Have you ever noticed how you have a much clearer view of things when you are not yourself immersed in them? You ever notice how you can spot problems in other people's lives, other communities? When you're the outsider looking in and they divulge all this information to you, you can see all the various parts pretty clearly. 
That's the case of Amos. He actually goes into town. It's like, man, you guys are a mess. There's something going on here. What is wrong with you? But I want you to get a real sense of this. Because under Uzziah, remember, as Isaiah begins his book in chapter 7, he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Uzziah was a great king, a godly king. Things were good in Jerusalem. Things were prosperous in Jerusalem. People had what they needed. There was was an abundance in the land. There were no problems per se. And so it is in the middle of this prosperity, if you will, that people began to take for granted the good things that God had done. And I think this is where these chapters will touch us. And I think it's so important. I had a very long conversation just a couple of days ago with a guy, and we were talking about, you know, because he was of the opinion that the church was being persecuted and we were going through all these things because, you know, of the things that are going on in our government. And I said, I said, I think if I'm looking at the world correctly, um, we've actually not ever had it any better than we have it right now in America. We actually have it really, really good compared to the rest of the world. And the church has it really good compared to the rest of the world. Yes, we have a pandemic going on. Yes, we're wearing masks and all those kind of things. But as far as prosperity, as far as having food on our tables, as far as having homes, As far as being able to get from point A to point B, things are pretty good. Not perfect, but pretty good. Oh, but we're being persecuted. And I said, how? Well, you know, they might pack the court. And I said, well, yeah, they might. But is that the court of heaven or is that the court of man? He said, well, you know, it's the Supreme Court. I said, is that the court of heaven or is that the court of man? And finally, when it boiled down to it, it was like there was more emphasis being paid on whether to the, to the court of man instead of the court of heaven. And therein is the problem when the church begins to look at this world as the final authority and we don't see God for who he is. God is the final authority. He is the one that is sovereign. He is the one that ultimately says yea or nay to all things, either by direct causality, in other words, he brings it about, or he allows it for a specific purpose or reason because he is sovereign. Amos understood this. And he understood that judgment would come to whom much is given, much is required. That's always been true. And so as we begin this book, we we see a nation that was at the zenith of its power, about to take a slide. We, We see material prosperity combined with, get this, social ills. Material prosperity combined with social ills. In other words, they had all these wonderful things, but they didn't do much with it. 
And to them, we will actually see in chapter 8, he says to them, prepare to meet your God. And I think that's the message for us. We have to be prepared every day to meet the Lord. What is the Lord going to say when we finally get home? Is he going to say, well done? Good and faithful servant, enter into my kingdom of joy, my kingdom of rest. Is that what we're going to hear? Or is it, man, Jeff, what were you thinking? What were you doing? What happened in the church? And again, not to to take you and put you into some kind of funk, but prosperity had dulled the hearts of the people. Prosperity does that. And so here's this guy who's harvesting sycamore fruit, herding sheep in a hostile environment that looks out at the world around him and says, you guys don't even see how good you have it. You're missing how blessed you are. And the whole time, the culture around him is is looking at God going, God, why are you letting these things happen? And so it is here that we learn the lesson that while God is infinitely patient, infinitely kind, infinitely loving, there is a limit to the distance God travels in the allowance of sinful behavior. Why is that important to us? Because we can mistake God's allowance for God's approval. Do you understand what I just said? We can mistake God's allowance for God's approval. We can say, well, God didn't do anything about this, so he must be okay with it. That is a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous place, and no Christian should live there. When God has spoken and his character is known to us, then it is incumbent upon us to live our lives that way. And Amos is going to tell the the entirety of the Jewish people, look, did not God say? You see, they're about to come into uh, contact with what will be the next great superpower. There's only about 30, 40 years between the ministries of Elisha, the prophet, and Amos. Isaiah is alive at the same time. Jeremiah is alive at the same time. God is clearly speaking to the Jewish people. He's like, he's got his voice everywhere. And they're all saying the same thing. Well, you really don't want to trust in horses and chariots. You, want, you don't want to trust in the arm of strength. You don't want to trust in yourself. You want to trust in the Lord. And so this new superpower, which is Assyria, and we're going to see them in very great detail. As they come on the scene, there's, there's this incredible tendency that I think we have to ignore the fact that this isn't the first time they've had to learn this lesson. They've already been in captivity for 400 years in Egypt, right? God delivers them from there. But they're unfaithful in the wilderness, so all of the people that came out of Egypt die in the wilderness, right? God wants a fresh start. And so this is very important for us to understand. 
God's not beyond letting sin die out and bringing up a new generation. If the old generation won't walk with him, he will let the old generation die out. And he'll do a new work in new people. And hopefully they'll do better. Here's the tragedy. They didn't change much. In fact, they started doing the same thing that was going on when they were in Egypt, the same thing that was going on before they went to Egypt. They engaged in the same behaviors and they expected a different result. This is where it ties into our culture. You see, you can't tell God that he has to now be okay with things that he has always said he's not okay with. God still hates sin. He loves sinners, but he still hates sin. He hates idolatry. He hates things that are abominable to him. And we're going to look at some of the things that Amos names. And, you know, we always have the the things that most of us can imagine he's going to say. But he also says things like greed and injustice and hatred of your brother. He starts going, he's going, guys, you're in this together. Why would you think these things would be okay? And so they leave Egypt, and, and here's the crazy thing. Okay, you all know the story of the Exodus. Probably not a person in here that hasn't at least heard part of it. You, you know that God sends these plagues, 10 of them, right? To try and teach. Pharaoh doesn't learn the lesson. But can I tell you, the Jewish people didn't learn the lesson either? Because they went right back into bondage. And in fact, the next enemies that are going to come are even going to be worse than the Egyptians. You would think that when Moses says, hey, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh doesn't do it. And the Jewish people are going, yeah, frogs, yeah. River of blood, yeah. Flies, yeah. Finally, death of the firstborn. I'll teach you. Our God is... They didn't learn a thing. In fact, by the time they get into the land, they end up taking up even more abominable practices. Do not, church, make God teach you lessons repeatedly because he has the incredible ability to match the intensity of your sin with the intensity of of the pain that he will inflict in your life to drive that out. That's who he is. He so hates what sin will do to you that he will not leave you alone in your sin. He will absolutely take every measure. And so who's going to come? Assyria. Who will be next? Babylon. Greece. Rome. And on through the history books. You see, I think we can understand these things well because you have Assyria on the horizon. We already studied the book of Isaiah. You might remember a little tiny detail there found in chapter 37. The Assyrian army has surrounded Jerusalem. You remember what had to happen in order for the people to be delivered? 
one angel of the Lord went out in one night and slayed 185,000 of the encampment of the Assyrians. That's the only reason they survived. The only reason wasn't because they were military geniuses. They were basically farmers trying to fight. It was because God delivered them. You would think they'd get that lesson and they'd learn it. They'd already been delivered from Pharaoh. Now they're going to have to be delivered from Assyria. Then they're going to have to be delivered from King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Alexander the Great, the Greeks. A whole slew of Caesars, amen? Beginning with, we pick up the story with Augustus, Caesar Augustus, and then Caesar Nero, Emperor Hadrian. It's insane. Church. There's a story there for us. We have been saved by grace and through faith. We're God's kids. And praise God for that grace. What are you doing to live in that grace? What are you doing with the grace-filled existence God's given you? How are you using it for his glory? What are you about? You see, the Jewish people became about other things. They literally ignored what was on the horizon. And in fact, the whole reason the Samaritans became hated was because of the Assyrians themselves. In our day and time, we, we live in perilous times. Amen? I was reading an article today. I praise the Lord. Guess, guess who the first country to remove the mask mandate outdoors is? Guess which one it is? Israel. Why? They're still brilliant. <laughs> They're still technologically advanced. They still have tremendous minds. They're still leaning on that arm. We have to learn these lessons. Otherwise, we're going to start trusting in the might of the U.S. military. We're going to think that, well, you know, at least we have mutually assured destruction. God wants us to trust in him, not ourselves. God's people are supposed to trust in God. And one of the beautiful things that we will see is how God works with the Jewish people and how he continues to speak to them and continues to bless them, even in spite of the things that are going on around them. But they're going to see the rise of a world power, the likes of which I'm not sure we've seen since. The Assyrians were probably one of the most violent, vicious powers the world has ever seen. And there was only one answer, and that was God himself. Church, there's still only one answer. That's God himself. If the Lord be for us, who can be against us? Amen? But if he is against us, it doesn't matter who's for us. If God be for us, who can be against us? But if he is against us, it does not matter who is for us. And this is why we need to get right this whole principle of why the church exists in this world. 
We exist to the glory of God. We're here to glorify the king. To make sure that people know about King Jesus. And to live our lives in such a way, if we do not speak any words, that people will still know who our king is. People should know who your king is, even if you don't say anything. Do you realize that? They should see something so different in you, they would have to go, well, you're just not the average American. And that's not to put away things like patriotism or anything else. Those things are all fine. But people should be able to see who your king is. Not who your culture is. Who your king is. Your culture is secondary. It might even be third. It should look like this. King Jesus, your spouse, your children, your family, then your culture. That's what the Bible teaches You know how I know that? Because in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all, Paul said, one in Christ. Amen? And if we do that, then we live our lives for the king. The king's first. Everything becomes about the king. It's Jesus. It's him. It's the Lord of Lords. And then the rest of the things take their proper place. Freedom is wonderful. But if you use your freedoms to please self, we don't honor the king. We use our freedoms to honor the king. We use our resources to honor the king. We use the substance of our lives to honor the king. The Jewish people during this time started taking their freedoms and using them to please themselves in a variety of horrible ways. That has never worked for God's people. It didn't work for them. It won't work for us. And so God, in his infinite wisdom, as the Jewish people begin to worship the foreign gods of the Canaanites, the god Moloch and Ashtaroth, the Canaanite cow god, storm god. Jeroboam's cult ends up actually having a place in the temple. It's like you could, one size fits all. All roads lead to Yahweh. Well, it's, you know, it's just like it's a little calf worship, you know. It's kind of like have a calf and, you know, kind of worship Yahweh. It's like, you know, read the Torah, but, you know, this is a lot more fun. Church, we have an opportunity, I believe, in our day and time like I have never seen exist in my lifetime because the world is truly looking for answers. They're really looking. I mean, it's amazing to me how many people, you can walk up to somebody, hey, what do you think about God? You'd be surprised how many people, oh, yeah, wow, They may tell you a bunch of crazy, wacky things. That's your opportunity. Well, let me tell you about my king. Our problem is we want to tell them about politics, or we want to tell them about free market economies, or we want to tell them about the U.S. military, we want to tell them about what's going on in the government, we want to tell them about what scandal happened in the newspaper today. 
We need to be about the king's business in these days. That's what matters. That doesn't mean that you get completely disconnected from all things in the world. You should actually be connected. But you should be connected so you can use those connections to tell people about the king. Because he's still coming. If Amos saw the coming king, which he does, we know the king is coming, then the message is even more urgent today. If they were tempted to follow after the cults of Jeroboam, if they were worshiping the earth goddess, if they had pagan temples at their door, if they were preoccupied with getting rich, if they were building mansions instead of helping the poor, and that was problematic then, where did we begin? I, the Lord, change not. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. If those things were problematic then, they're still problematic. So you're going, well, you know, well, you know, what, what about? Well, what about if we make the king first and these other things take their place? What if our lives are so much about the Lord that our wealth speaks of the Lord? Our generosity speaks of the Lord. Our holiness speaks of the Lord. Our personal integrity Anybody think we need more integrity in this country? I do. I'm, I'm stunned sometimes. So it, it boggles my mind that the church can try and hang Jesus on a person or a movement or a political party. He is holy enthroned in heaven. He is not like us, but we are supposed to be like him. What if the church actually did that? What if we were so different that people actually saw it? They said, why are you like that? Amos is going to live underneath the first recorded sexual revolution in the Bible. And he doesn't have much good to say about it. He was so stirred he's going to denounce it. Now you might be saying, wow, this is going to be heavy. Yeah, probably. But it's also going to be really good. Because one of the great things about books like this is when you see how consistent God has been it causes you to look at your own life and go, Lord, let me be consistent. Let me be like you. Let me live my life in a way that pleases you. There's kind of almost a cold logic, if you will, to Amos. He, he looks at the world, he goes, black, white. Wrong, right. Good, bad. He doesn't go, well, you know, I don't really know. I'm not sure. A lady called me a couple of weeks ago, and she was, she was distraught, and rightly so. 
You know, what am I doing? My, my kids are going down to the dispensary and they're buying dope and they're bringing it back to the house. Tell them if they want to smoke that stuff that they need to get their own house. Problem solved. Seriously. It's like stand for something. If you think it's wrong, then tell people it's wrong. Somebody comes to you, well, you know, I'm going to go to my friend's gay wedding. If you truly believe that that is wrong before the Lord, then stand for right. That party you know you shouldn't go to. Don't go to it. It's time for the church to live lives that are without compromise. There's plenty of compromise in the world. We don't need to be part of it. The book of Hosea uses the language of love. Amos is going to speak more to the law. He's like, here, here it is. Amos is going to speak to, to our heads. He's going to go, you know, think about this for a second. This is who God is. Shouldn't we be like him? There's a calm logic to what he says. There's, there's that type of person, and I, I hope that all of you have met them, or maybe you are one yourself, but you can go see things and you go, you know what, that's just not okay. And remove yourself from the situation. Say, so you know what, Jesus wouldn't do that. That's who Amos is. Amos is going to say some crazy stuff. He's literally going to call the ladies in the general, he's going to call them cows. I was like, I'm not suggesting you should do that, by the way. It's not a good way to start a conversation. Hey, cow, how's it going? No, but he, he's like, you're acting like an animal. You're being a beast. It's not okay. You see, here's the thing, and I'm going to wrap it up with this. God's character being what it is, that principle that we learned in Galatians chapter 6, the, the reaping and sowing issue, is a spiritual law. Whatsoever a man or a woman sows, that you shall also reap. And, and Paul goes on, if you sow to the flesh and in corruption, then you're going to reap in corruption in your life. You, you can't escape these things. Like nobody gets a pass on that. Here's the problem. God does not always extract a penalty immediately from our forays into the flesh. And so what happens is we think because that didn't happen, it's like, well, I got away with it that time. God didn't do anything. I got away with it that time. And God really didn't do anything. And I got away with it that time. And God really didn't do anything. So we think that there's not going to be any reaping of what we've sown. And that simply isn't true. God might be very, very gracious to one person. He might be instantaneously dealing with somebody else on the same exact situation after one time of whatever it is that we did. So be careful because that was what the children of Israel fell into. They said, we're rich. We have nice houses. We got plenty of food. We got all these good things going on. So God must be okay with our sin. And he wasn't. And it was going to get really, really, really horrible. 
But they looked at the circumstances and said, because God hasn't done anything about it, he must be okay with it. Amos was kind of like a Duck Dynasty kind of guy. You know, it's just like he said it like it was. Paul put it this way. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. It's still true. It's still true. That's why grace overcomes. It's why our lives in Christ are such a unique thing in this world. Amos is going to make a reference that although the wealth was abundant, so was the poverty. Although there were, was a beautiful temple in Jerusalem, there weren't many godly people in it. And so God, in that sense, is going to take us on a journey in a way that I think we can look at our world and go, Lord, I want to live in a way that people know exactly who you are by the way I live my life. If Amos were to come to your house or my house or this church, what would he write? What would be the story of our lives? I pray it's going to be a really good one. That's what I want. And I believe most of you do as well. I think he's going to give us some insight into our culture. Why we're struggling so hard right now. Why, why we continue to have the same problems over and over and over and over again. Why we can't seem to get past some of these horrific issues that just are plaguing our nation. Could it be that God is asking the church to stand up in these last days and be different? I believe it is. So let's do that. Let's be different. Let's allow God to cause us to be so different that the world says, that's how you're supposed to live your life. Amen? Would you stand and we'll close in prayer. Any prayer after service, maybe something going on in your life, prayer rooms available, prayer teams in there. Get ready for a four-wheel drive ride through ancient Israel. Father, thank you for this amazing man that was willing to say what needed to be said. Lord, make us like that. Help us in our families. Uh, and Lord, not to be rude, not to be unkind. We can be loving, we can be kind and still speak the truth. Exactly as your word tells us to do there in Ephesians. We're to speak the truth in love. But Lord, we have to speak the truth. We've got to be about the right things. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would minister to us as we journey through this book. It's a short journey through a short book, but it's an impactful one. Lord, help us to live our lives in a way that the world knows who is our king. And it's you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen. 
Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.